Hello and welcome to PNW Currents, an in-depth podcast from the Northwest Progressive Institute that brings together thinkers from Washington, Oregon, and Idaho to discuss strategies for advancing progressive causes across our region and beyond. I'm your host, Kaya Burnt, and thank you for joining us. At the Northwest Progressive Institute, we believe that good legislation and good policy don't pass by accident. Were the ideas from increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour, to Medicare for all, to wider availability of rooftop solar needs sound strategies if they are to become a reality? Our team believes research is the key to identifying winning strategies, while advocacy is the key to implementing them. And that's why we're engaged in both. You can learn more about our insightful research, imaginative advocacy, and our history by visiting nwprogressive.org. Again, that is nwprogressive.org. I will give you that information again at the end of this podcast. Our topic for this month's episode is climate damage and its impacts on the Pacific Northwest. In August, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the United Nations acclaimed international team of climate researchers, which is also known by the acronym IPCC, released their sixth assessment of the state of the Earth's climate. They found, once again, that the Earth is warming quickly and that human activities are the reason why. They characterized the report as a code red report for humanity, warning of rising sea levels and a continued increase in extreme weather, stressing that the once ambitious goal to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius is now woefully out of reach. This past summer, we felt the scourge of climate damage like never before. Smoke from wildfires ruined tourist season in the Methow Valley and other areas. Drought plagued the inland northwest. The whole region experienced a historic heat wave in late June and early July, shattering temperature records as some areas reached over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Hundreds of people died throughout Cascadia. Our flora and fauna were also negatively impacted, and far worse ramifications are on the way. Sadly, these consequences are projected to fall the hardest on black, brown, indigenous, and low-income communities. The lesson of these events is that the climate crisis is here, now. Time is not on our side. Continued inaction would be immoral and irresponsible. We owe it to ourselves and to the future generations we're borrowing the earth from to take swift and meaningful steps to reduce pollution. Joining me today to make sense of what's happening to our climate and assess a range of scenarios for the future, from the best case to the worst case, are Professor Larry O'Neill from Oregon, Karen Bubako from Washington, and Dr. Jeffrey Hickey from Idaho. Uh, Welcome to all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Definitely. So before we get into our discussion, let's just do a brief introduction so our listeners can get a sense of the expertise and experience that this panel is bringing to our episode of PNW Currents. Jeffrey, would you like to go ahead and get us started? Sure. Uh, Thanks for having me on the show. I'm a professor in the Department of Geography and Geological Sciences at the University of Idaho. I teach and do research about climate change My particular research interests are on how climate change affects the forests of the western U.S., especially bark beetle outbreaks as forest disturbances. All right, thank you very much. And Karen, over to you. Sure. My name is Karen Bumbacco. I'm the assistant state climatologist for Washington State. Um, And we do all sorts of monitoring for the state of Washington in terms of whether there will be drought development, um, and easing and our 
specialty is um, heat waves um, and drought. And finally, Larry. Hi, my name is Larry O'Neill, and I'm an associate professor at Oregon State University in the College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences. And I'm also the state climatologist for Oregon and the director of Oregon Climate Services. And my research uh, looks a lot at the coupled uh, interactions between the ocean and the atmosphere and how they uh, infect Earth's climate. And as far as uh, my state climatologist duties, um, I do a lot of uh, drought monitoring and uh, water supply availability uh, monitoring and um, other types of uh, climatologist activities. All right, thank you very much. And I'm Kaya, your host. I'm an MPI staff member, an undergraduate at Central Washington University, a Spokane resident and eternal optimist. I love people, I love theory, and because of that, I'm passionate about bringing people together to have productive conversations that can spark long-lasting change. So it's wonderful to have you all here. So I'd like to get started by briefly reviewing the latest climate science and what it can tell us about where we're headed. Supposing we don't get our act together and pollution continues unchecked, what kind of impacts might befall Cascadia? And if we do get our act together as a world community, what kind of consequences might our region be spared from? Karen, would you like to go ahead and get us started? Sure. So one of the main issues for uh, Washington State and the Pacific Northwest as a whole is, of course, our snowpack. So with increased temperatures, um, we expect more of that snow uh, in the wintertime to fall as rain. So we would have less of a reservoir for our snow for the winter, which has huge implications in terms of water supply for agriculture, for people, for fish. And so that is something we're looking at certainly happening regardless of whether we mitigate climate change or not. It's the extent to how bad the water supply issues will become in the future. Thank you for that. And then Larry? Yeah, for Oregon, um, we're very much like Washington, where the snow, the evolution of the snowpack into the future is uh, really concerning because in the kind of the worst case scenario where we have high emissions and little mitigation, uh, our snowpack by the end of the century will be just confined to basically elevations above 7,000 feet, so the highest volcanoes in the Cascade Range. And the reason that should concern people is that the snowpack is a natural reservoir for a lot of our water supply into the summer. And the snowpack also provides a buffer for water supply in the summer that uh, keeps trees healthy and reduces forest fires. Without that snowpack, um, we'll have a longer fire season, more effects on the ecology of the forest, so the health of the trees and, uh, and other plants and animals in the landscape. As well as when you go downstream, uh, we use a lot of that water for irrigation and also for municipal water supply. And with less snow in the mountains, that means that there'll be more runoff during the winter and there'll be less water available for us in the summer when we need it the most. And the other aspect for Oregon and Washington, or the Pacific Northwest in general, is that there's also a trend in, in extreme heat days that we observe in the instrumented data record right now. So days above 90 degrees Fahrenheit, for instance, have been becoming more frequent uh, in the last few decades. And this trend is expected to continue. So by the middle of the century, in the worst case scenario, we might have double the number of days in the Willamette Valley in Oregon with high temperatures above 90 degrees Fahrenheit. So extreme heat um, is definitely a big concern for you know, outdoor workers, vulnerable communities, and a number of different human systems as well. So public health is a big concern there. 
All right. Thank you. And then how about you, Jeff? Yeah, there are uh, obviously a wide range of impacts. And Karen and Larry talked about snowpack and uh, heat waves. I guess I'll focus on wildfires, which are also a major impact throughout the, the three-state region. Uh, warming has already affected wildfires through leading to more arid conditions that drive fuels, longer fire seasons that allow for fires to occur later and earlier in the, the uh, season. Um, and these have obvious consequences for things like, well, costs for su suppression. So there's an economic cost. There's obviously life and structure issues that come with fires. But then also uh, wildfires uh, produce lots of smoke. And we've all experienced that last summer and in previous summers. And the, that smoke uh, obviously limits um, outdoor activities uh, by people and uh, affects the elderly and people with lung conditions uh, already. And so there are quite a number of um, impacts of wildfires that are both local, that is where the fires are happening, but also um, remotely as well. And we expect, of course, the, the, the conditions associated with um, wildfires, that is the hot and dry conditions, to be exacerbated in the future. And so we might expect more fires, more severe fires, more frequent, larger fires, and so on with associated impacts. And then one thing you asked about was what if we got our act together, <laughs> what could happen? And by getting your act, our act together, I think you probably mean if uh, countries agree to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and limit future warming. And of course, by doing so, the impacts we've been talking about, all, all of the impacts we talk about will be uh, substantially reduced. We expect continued loss of snow, heat waves, wildfires, and other impacts in the future, but they will be substantially reduced if greenhouse gas emissions are reduced in the future. All right. Thank you for all of those initial thoughts, everybody. Jeff, I want to turn to you. You were a member of the working group who contributed to the sixth IPCC assessment report, um, contributing to the section on North America in Chapter 14. You also drafted a letter to Idaho state legislators confronting a number of heartland statements used by climate deniers to minimize the impacts of climate damage. In it, you described the potential long-term effects of warming on crop production, as well as the added stress on local fisheries. Are there any impacts to agriculture that we haven't previously discussed that we need to be talking about? You mentioned a few major ones, and, and that is that with heat waves, with hotter, drier conditions, we expect crop yields, many crop yields to go down. It's possible that it conditions that are, or locations that are currently marginal for crops because of um, colder conditions, they may actually benefit. But as a whole, we think that crop yields will go down. You mentioned effects on fish and aquaculture and, and fisheries in general, especially freshwater fisheries that are being affected by warming stream conditions. We've seen closures in the Pacific Northwest uh, associated with hot conditions um, that affect not only food, but also recreation. Marine heat waves are affecting fisheries off the coasts of uh, Oregon and Washington that affect fisheries. Um, and, and those have had some major impacts. I suspect Karen and Larry might be able to speak to those in greater detail, but from an impacts perspective, we know that the, that the hot water has affected the ocean ecosystem and therefore the fishery production 
And I guess one other thing that might be talked about is the effects on livestock. And uh, it's expected that livestock productivity will go down because of heat stress to animals. And livestock and milk production in particular in Idaho is quite important. So there's a lot of concern about how future warmer conditions will adversely affect those uh, farmers. Yeah, thank you. Larry, would you like to add on to the potential, you know, with your specialty in oceanic research, would you like to add on to the potential for ocean warming? Yeah. So as Jeff mentioned, the the fisheries in the, the North Pacific Ocean are extremely vulnerable to uh, rises in temperatures. And so we see that with some of the recent marine heat waves in the North Pacific. And uh, people might know it by its colloquial name, the blob. So we've had a couple, um, several in the last 10 years of some of the warmest temperatures in the North Pacific um, associated with this blob of warm water. And one of the things it's done is really uh, shifted the marine ecosystem a, a long way. And it's uh, really affecting fishing communities in Alaska, British Columbia, and somewhat in the Pacific Northwest as well. So we, we can see that the you know, the salmon, um, you know, salmon returning to spawning uh, in, in very low numbers. And part of this is because of the warm temperatures are affecting their their habitats and their the, the movement of the fish, their, uh, their food source in the water column. It's doing so in ways that we don't completely understand yet, but we can obviously see the impacts of uh, diminished yields in, in the fishing sector. And this is really having a big effect on communities in, um, you know, indigenous communities all along, you know, in, in Alaska, Canada and Pacific Northwest, who rely on this as a, uh, a staple. So this is really concerning. Um, when we look at the fish in the streams within Oregon, the low water levels in the summertime that we've been experiencing quite often in the last ten years is, you know, it obviously it's incre increased the water temperatures. It's also increased harmful algal blooms within the waterways, and also it's increased the concentrations of pollutants that we've entered into this into the stream. So we we enter a fixed amount of pollution into the streams and it's diluted by a smaller amount of water. So it makes it the water a little bit more toxic for uh, all the fish and the other animals that rely on that. So those are a big impacts. Um, there's another one that was in the news um, of the low reservoir levels in within Oregon this, uh, this fall is that the water levels are so low that the fish that are stocked in those reservoirs the reservoir will get too cold and will not sustain the fish population through the winter. So they are opening up fishing, lifting restrictions on fish catches on those reservoirs because all those fish will probably not, uh, there'll be very, very high mortality this uh, winter there. So that's kind of an interesting impact that we, you know, that's just coming to light right now that we didn't necessarily anticipate. All right. Thank you. Moving over to Karen, um, you touched on this in the introduction. The rise in global temperatures exacerbates the worst of summer from drought to wildfires, but it's also resulted in a troubling trend on the other side, and that is glacier and snowpack recession. So the National Geographic describes, for our listeners who may not be as familiar with the term, National Geographic describes snowpack as the snow in mountainous areas that remains until warmer weather. So think of snow berms on the street, but in the mountains. In May of 2021, the snowpack of Washington was below average, and in general, less snow and earlier snowmelt comes spring. Karen, you started talking a little bit about the snowpack in the introduction. Would you mind expanding on your thoughts about what the decreased snowpack could mean for our region, and what are the biggest factors that are contributing to this increase in the heat? Yeah. Can I go back to agriculture real quick first, though? Yeah, definitely. 
Okay. <laughs> I just had one thing to add. Agriculture is not necessarily my specialty, but I think that one thing that is somewhat confusing regarding agriculture and climate change is that there's actually some crops that will respond well to warming temperatures and increased carbon dioxide like apple yields, for example, in the Yakima Basin in Washington state are actually projected to increase by 16% by the 2080s under a medium greenhouse gas scenario. But what that doesn't take into account at all is water availability. So apples are very water intensive crop. So that is a lot of times the downfall for ag. So I just wanted to kind of, it's a nuance, but something that's easy, especially hearing about Jeff responding to some of the Heartland Institute talking points that can easily kind of be flipped on its head and can be confusing for folks. So I did want to talk about that and wine grapes, for example, like wine grapes love to be stressed. So there's actually some projections that show Washington wine is going to increase in value and quality to some extent. And then the one other point I wanted to jump back to on that just even in like yields increasing in general for in climate change doesn't take into account also when you have those big heat events. So one thing we saw a ton of this summer with that late June, early July heat wave is like sunburn on some of the apples and cherry crops. And so that I expect to become more of an issue when we do see these extreme events in the summer too. So there's like a limit on the amount of warming that would help some of these crops, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. So I guess, let's see, back to snowpack. I I think the biggest factor is just the warming temperatures. So it's just less, you know, as that snow line moves up on the mountains, you're going to get rain at higher elevations. um, So less snow falling, even though our our seasonal projections for the Pacific Northwest show increased precipitation in the fall and winter, it's just going to be more rain. So the increased temperature, reducing the amount of snowpack, that amount that we're storing as a reservoir will have implications for agriculture. The other thing is recreation. Like we've touched on it a little bit in terms of the wildfire smoke mattering for like hiking and stuff like that, but even just like river recreation, fishing due to lower stream flows. The other kind of nuance there too is it's not just the lack of water supply for fish, but the less water you have in the rivers and streams, the more easily it can warm. So it could Um, the water temperatures can become warmer and be lethal for fish more easily, less water in streams. So fish are another key factor relating to snowpack as well there. Can I jump in on ag? Yes, you can. So uh, yeah, I'm glad Karen brought up these nuances. There there are a few other ones that I didn't mention that are, are kind of surprising, at least maybe for folks who aren't used to thinking about it. And that is that we expect climate change to have beneficial impacts on the pests, that is the insects and diseases and weeds that may actually limit uh, agricultural yields in ways that, well, we don't understand, but certainly in ways that might um, limit any benefits and may exacerbate any um, negative impacts of the direct effects. Um, and then another one that's kind of interesting is the the fact that we expect heavier rainfalls, more extreme precipitation events. And they may actually limit the farmers' abilities to get into their fields to plow uh, in the springtime. And those are kind of subtleties, indirect effects of climate change on, on agriculture that are not so easily, well, viewed or understood without some um, additional thinking, I guess. 
So uh, I just want to make a point that, I, that those examples are really good examples of how indirect effects on something can really be an important um, additional impact besides just the direct effects of warming or changes in precipitation. So Jeff, climate scientists have been warning us about increased global temperatures for decades, but this past summer, as we all have noted, was hard. Wildfires have ravaged the Pacific Northwest's forests and grasslands, clogging our air with hazardous levels of smoke. And according to a recent study by the Northwest Interagency Coordination Center, wildfires burned 20 times more land in 2021 than they did last year. And these aren't normal wildfires. There's been talk within climate circles that this cycle of extreme wildfires could be the new normal. And some are calling this new age we're entering the pyrocene. How did we end up in this cycle of extremely dangerous wildfires? And what, if anything, can we do to minimize our risk from fast-moving, incredibly destructive fires in the future? Yeah, so uh, I'll just say that um, fires are a pretty complex system affected by a lot of things, including human activities, including human activities decades ago, as well as climate <clears throat> as well as the sort of elevation or forest type that uh, fires occur at. So it's pretty complex to tease apart whether individual fire years or even trends in fires recently have been, or the, the extent to which they've been influenced by anthropogenic climate change, that is climate change that has been caused by humans. There's been some recent work that's beginning to tease that out. But because human activities regarding fire suppression have changed at the same time that the climate has warmed, you have these two factors that are affecting fires that are operating at the same time. And so um, we're just now, I think, in the last several years, beginning to see the scientific research that allows us to understand that, yes, in fact, anthropogenic human-caused climate change has affected fires in the West. Um, so we do expect that to continue. I, I think um, a great use of uh, fire years like 2012 is to understand that uh, the hot and dry conditions that occurred that facilitated those fires are going to be example, or those years will be examples of what will happen very frequently, maybe multiple times per decade, multiple years per decade, maybe every year per decade in the future. The, as I mentioned, the fire season lengthen, uh, warmer conditions in spring lead to drier fuels that lead to fires earlier, as well as later in fall. But then the hotter, drier conditions, the heat waves during summertime dry out fuels and allow fires that might not have uh, expanded an area and been so severe to actually um, turn out like 2021 in recent fires. So although it's it's likely that humans have contributed um, it, to the recent large fire years. It's, it's difficult to actually pinpoint much beyond that, but it is, we do understand the physics of, of what fires, how fires work, and we know that future climate change is going to facilitate wildfires, uh, both in terms of extent, but uh, uh, number, um, severity, most likely. So did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, thank you very much for that. So as we've all touched on, heat is also a big health risk. Aside from heat stroke, it can lead to a number of medical complications, such as dehydration, kidney failure, mental fatigue, high blood pressure, and 
death. The Pacific Northwest's housing infrastructure is wholly ill-equipped to handle such extreme temperatures. Only a third of the homes in Seattle have central air conditioning. These impacts will disproportionately affect low-income communities and communities of color. Larry, should Pacific Northwest states consider subsidizing heat pump and air conditioning installation for some of these vulnerable communities? Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, this the heat wave we had this year was, you know, maybe quite dramatic and maybe we're not going to experience that like every single year. But the most concerning parts of the uh, some of the increase in temperatures are, you know, the fact that we're getting more of these 90 degree days every year and then also that the nighttime temperatures are increasing as well. So this obviously leads to, you know, the public health uh, impacts that you noted. And even when we do get these extreme um, heat events where, you know, a couple days over 100 or 110 degrees, what it showed this year was that in the Pacific Northwest, that is a public health crisis. And we were not equipped to deal with that. You know, we did open up cooling centers and things like that to, to try to do that. But there's only so many people that could take advantage of that. And if you're not if you're not near one and you don't have transportation to one, if you're not in a community that has access, then, you know, you're not going to be able to benefit from that. Uh, so the next next thing to do is to have local, you know, within your houses, a, a, you know, some central cooling units. And one interesting tool is, is to is to think about, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, where in the country our climate will look like in 50 years. So, you know, in Portland, for instance, in 50 years, it will start to look like Sacramento as far as their climate goes in the summertime. And I, I grew up for a, a time in Sacramento and nearly everybody had an air conditioning system and there were air conditioning systems in all public places that were definitely high powered. And that's something we don't have here. And I think that is something that we will need to, to um, invest in in the future. And like uh, like Northern California, it is possible to do that. So they, they've had uh, many years to, to do that, to build up the system of air conditioning and uh, cooling systems and things like that. So it's definitely something we, sh- we need to invest in here. But our time scale obviously is, is much shorter now because now we're starting to experience these, you know, these extreme heat events and not only the extreme heat events, but just these longer duration heat waves. I would like to stay on the topic of infrastructure because our nation's infrastructure is not ready for a future made harder by climate impacts. Just this year, we saw Hurricane Ida and a bevy of other storms cause immense destruction, not just in Gulf Coast states like Louisiana, but in the likes of New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey as well. What do you think Washington, Oregon, and Idaho need to do to get our region's infrastructure ready to handle the climate impacts over the next 15 years? First of all, it's important to identify the impacts that'll happen. Uh, We've talked a lot about snow, flooding, wildfires. And so, and then the next thing is to understand the adaptation actions that can be implemented. And adaptation means actions that are taken to limit future climate change impacts. So for instance, with flooding, my town, Moscow, Idaho, flooded in 2019. It was unusual in April, a pretty big storm, terrible, people didn't die, but uh, we really need to start thinking about, can we modify um, the stormwater system to accommodate these kinds of floods? And, And I imagine that's the case throughout the Pacific Northwest. So that might be one area. 
Another area we've talked about already is health and trying to get the infrastructure associated with health impacts in place. Can we open more cooling stations or at least plan for more cooling stations or, or locations that, uh, where people can go if they have difficulty with air quality, whether it's uh, wildfire smoke or pollution, ozone, pollen, that sort of thing. So getting those, that sort of health infrastructure in place, including alerts, public alerts and messaging about here it comes and here's where you can go to get relief. Those are a few examples of infrastructure that um, we can start planning for. Thank you. Those are great thoughts. And Karen, how about you? Yeah, I guess I could add on there just kind of being the snowpack messenger is that, you know, another thing to consider too is increased storage for our water when it does fall um, in the fall and winter. So that's, you know, obviously a huge undertaking. There's so many considerations that have to be taken into account if we're talking about building new reservoirs, environmental impact, what this means for fish, but, and those things need to start now. In the more immediate future, there are there has been some talk that we might be in for another La Nina winter. Do you think that that's in the future for the Pacific Northwest? And do you think that those will become more regular? Yeah, so I think we're it's pretty safe to say that we will see a La Nina this winter, but that happens in the equatorial Pacific Ocean. So it's an oscillation between a La Nina and an El Nino. La Nina is when there's cool water up against the western coast of South America, and that kind of shifts this area of thunderstorms that has implications for the entire globe in terms of the circulation. So certainly the Pacific Northwest does not always fit this pattern, but usually during La Nina winters, we are a little bit on the cooler side on average, wetter on average, and have above normal snowpack by April 1st. So that is good news considering the region-wide drought that we're hopefully coming out of, but realistically the amount of precipitation that needs to be made up, particularly Eastern Washington, Eastern Oregon, and inland Idaho is so much that even a La Nina bringing slightly above average precipitation, if that indeed pans out, will likely not get us out of this longer term drought. With that said, La Nina also does give us a little bit of a higher probability um, of snowfall in western Washington. Um, So that is something to just prepare for this winter. So for maybe some lowland snow, it tends to be have a higher probability during La Nina years. But I am optimistic for above normal snowpack by April 1 for Washington. Optimism is a good thing. We are coming towards the end of the show. So before we wrap up, I just have one final question for all of you. All of this is, to put it simply, a lot. While there are actions that we can take as individuals, such as buying more energy-efficient appliances, driving less, or helping with reforestation, the climate crisis will require a global response to effectively address. That's what the upcoming United Nations Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, Scotland will be about. So my question to you all is what advice would you give to a listener who would want to follow those proceedings? Or more generally, are there any reporters, columnists, or scientists or media figures that you recommend subscribing to or following in order to get you know, timely analysis of the event or just to learn more about the climate crisis in general? Karen, would you like to get us started? 
Sure. For following, I have to do a shameless plug for the Office of the Washington State Climatologist. So we write a monthly newsletter that gets distributed out to an email list that's also posted on our website, which is climate.washington.edu. And it reviews the previous month's weather for Washington State, puts that kind of in a historical context. Um, and then we also have feature articles every month. So one future fe- future feature, a bit of a tongue twister there, would could certainly be what happens at this UN meeting. So that's one way to be informed. Another blog I really like is realclimate.org in terms of if you really want to get into the nitty gritty of climate change projections and what the state of the science is. No, thank you very much. And Jeff? Um, so I'm less of an immediate news junkie um, than others. So I, I'm not really a, a Twitter or um, follower. But what I do is um, I like uh, a few sources of uh, climate information that's perhaps a little delayed, but the New York Times has a a newsletter that comes out once every few days called Climate Forward, and I don't know their plans for covering the the, um, upcoming COP meeting, but I suspect they will have a good analysis uh, in the middle and and certainly at the end of what's happened. And then the other source that I like, uh, because it's uh, a little sciencey, but um, also available to the general public, is a, a public radio news program called Science Friday, which is uh, has interviews on a particular topic. And again, I'm not sure that they'll cover COP uh, immediately, but I suspect there'll be some discussion and interviews and analysis uh, on that show. So that's what I'll be looking for. All right. Thank you very much. And finally, Larry. Yeah, so those are all great uh, outlets to, to follow. I, um, I do follow a couple, so this is not an exclusive list, but um, I really like uh, Catherine Hayhoe. She's a professor at uh, Texas, University of Texas or Texas A&M, and she does a lot on Twitter, uh, but um, and she's also written a few books on climate communication and, and has just a great, I think, a great take on some of the adaptation and mitigation strategies and also uh, communicating the science of climate change that I think is really beneficial and uh, I also like the, the Yale program on climate communications, uh, climate change communications. They tend to have very interesting things uh, to say and, and often timely, uh, very timely kind of analysis of like current research or current um, policy uh, before various uh, legislatures and things like that. And I think finally, um, I also follow uh, Susan Hassel from Climate Communications on Twitter, and, uh, and I seem to get a lot of uh, very good information from that too. Um, and then actually for uh, local, for actually stuff in California, I also uh, follow uh, David Swain and he does a lot of um, communication on climate, on California climate difficulties that they're experiencing now. And uh, he's a good source of uh, science-based communication. Thank you for those incredible insights. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us for the October 2021 episode of PNW Currents with our guests, Karen Babaco, Larry O'Neill, and Jeffrey Hickey. We hope you enjoy the discussion and hopefully gain some knowledge that you can apply to your own advocacy. We invite you to join us again next month when we'll be discussing our country's obligations to our veterans and our Afghan allies who are hoping for a fresh start in America. 
To learn more about the work that MPI does, be sure to check out our website at nwprogressive.org. Again, that is nwprogressive.org. There you will find a transcript of this episode and the PNW Currents archive, as well as our poll findings, State House Bill Tracker, Elections Hub, and our publications like the Cascadia Advocate and In Brief. We will see you next time. For NPI, I'm Kaya Burnt. Bye.